Well, good morning, everyone. If you have your Bibles with you, if you can turn to the book of 1 John. Um, if you don't have the Bible with you, that's okay. It's going to come up on the screen. Um, but if you have one, if you can be turning there. Just while you're finding your way there, I just wanted to share about something that had happened to, to us as a family uh, a few weeks ago. Now we uh, moved home, moved house, it's probably about seven or eight months ago. Uh, and, and it kind of comes to the point where our landlord had been in touch and had said, uh, it's coming up to the six, mo- six month po- uh, part and we need to have an inspection of the house, just see how things are going. So they're like, at some point we're going to get in touch and we'll arrange a date to, to come around and, and do that. Uh, so you, you can know when, when we're coming in to do that. It was sort of around the, the sort of time where we'd been looking to arrange a date with them. Our boiler had broken uh, and so we were having a new boiler fitted. And our landlord had said, am I all right just to come around one day and just to have a look and see what, how the work's going and how everything's going with the boiler? And we're like, yeah, that's absolutely fine. Uh, just pop around. And I think Steph was there that day when our landlord turned up and, and she checked on, on the engineers and how they were getting on and how things were going. Uh, and she said to Steph, she's like, we, we've been saying about arranging a, a time to come around and have a look. Well, while I'm here, should we just do it now and have a look and, and do it now? And Steph was like, yeah, that's fine. Uh, and when Steph told me, I kind of... Uh, went on a bit of a, a mental tour of our house. I like, went through each room thinking about what was it like when I left the house that day. And I went into the kitchen and I could just see this, these building works going on as the guys were, were fitting the boilers, like holes in the walls and there was stuff everywhere. And I was just like, had a little shudder. I was like, oh, no. But I was like, no, that's okay. They knew that was going on. That's why they were there to have a look in the first place. And then I went upstairs and I was like, oh, we had to move loads of stuff all over the place in order for the, for the engineers to have access to what they needed to. And I was like, so actually there was a lot of stuff lying around where it shouldn't be. And I was just like, oh, this isn't going to go well, is it? And then in my mind, I went out into the garden and I could see the bags of rubbish. Of I had been trying to get on top of the garden and I'd been cutting the grass and uh, sorting out the weeds and everything was bagged and ready to go. But there were bags everywhere, bags of rubbish just lying about in the garden. And as uh, I was going through this mental tour of our house, I tell you what, my confidence was just draining I was just like, oh, I was like, how did it go, Steph? And it went well, it was fine. Uh, they understood, uh, they were happy that we'd been keeping on top of the garden and stuff, and everything uh, was really good. And this had been on my mind as I was preparing for today, and I'll come back to it in just a moment. Now, the reason I've asked you to turn to 1 uh, John, and chapter 2 we're going to be in is that uh, is because we're in a series in 1 John. That would make sense if I asked you to turn there. That's because where we are. And Mike has uh, mentioned just a moment ago, he said that actually this series that we're looking at really is all about assurance. We've called it Assured. Because the theme of assurance, there's a theme that runs through this letter, there's a theme that runs through John's writing, and the theme is that, is that of assurance, that those that John is writing to would know that they would be sure that they have eternal life. So really, if you wanted to say, what is the theme of John? I think we could say it's about having assurance, that we could know, that we could be confident, that we have eternal life, and that eternal life is found in Jesus. Now, in his writing, John talks about the last hour. I think we looked at that last week. He mentions the last hour. Another way that the New Testament talks about this, it talks about the last Days And when the, when the scriptures speak about the last days, it's talking about this time between where Jesus has returned to the Father, the Holy Spirit has been sent into the church. So it's the time between then and when Jesus is going to be returning for his church. We've been singing about that this morning, haven't we? About Jesus, when Jesus returns. And this letter of assurance is written with Jesus', Jesus return in view. 
He's saying, look, church, you can have confidence. You can know that you have eternal life. Jesus is going to be coming back, and he's going to be coming back for his church. But remember, it's within that whole, John's heart is this. I want you to be sure. I want you to know. I want you to be confident. And in the verses that we're going to be looking at today, John is again drawing the hearer's attention to the coming of Jesus. We'll see in a minute. That's where we're going to start. He's saying, look, Jesus is going to be coming. Now, the reason I shared that story at the start is because, for me, as Steph told me about our landlord's visit, do you know what? My confidence just wavered. I was just like, we weren't kind of feeling like, actually, our house wasn't in the order that it normally is in. And kind of like, oh, it's kind of taken us a little bit by surprise. Um, I don't want it to be overdramatic. Do you know what? In light of eternity... In light of history, our six-month house inspection is really not that significant to anyone apart from us and our landlords. It really doesn't have that much significance. But what we will see today is that when Jesus returns, which is of utmost significance in eternity, what we will see is that God wants us to have confidence at his appearing, that we can have confidence at his arrival, that our confidence will not waver, that our confidence uh, will will not drain from us. And what we're going to be looking at today and what John is going to be sharing with, his, with uh, the hearers of this letter is what's required for us to have this confidence. It's one thing to say, look, I want you to have confidence, but actually John is saying, actually, this is how you can go about having confidence. Isn't that good news? It's not just have confidence. It's like, I'm going to tell you how, and I'm going to tell you the way that you can have that. So should we read together? We're going to read from 1 John chapter 2. We're going to be picking up from verse 28, which is where we left off last week. And it continues. I write, um, and now little children, abide in him, so that when he appears we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is, and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness, sin is lawlessness and you know that he appeared in order to take away sins and in him there is no sin no one who abides in him keeps on sinning and no one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him little children let no one deceive you whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil for the devil has been sinning from the beginning the reason the son of god appeared was to destroy the works of the devil No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Okay, so there's quite a lot there. I'm going to hopefully work through that together. We're going to unpack a few things. And again, to understand how John is able to say, look, you can have confidence. When Jesus returns. Now last week we were looking at, uh, there was a warning that John was bringing. And the warning that he was bringing was, do not be deceived by others. There's going to be those that are going to try and draw your attention away from the truth. They're going to say, actually, we, we know a different way other than the way that you've been taught. 
uh, about Jesus. And he's saying, look, don't allow yourselves to be deceived. You need to be those that know the truth. You need to be those people that hold on to the truth. Because that's where your assurance lies. That's where your security lies. And if you were here last week, you may remember, uh, John kind of gave two keys, really, uh, in order to in order to, to, to keep going on with, with that confidence and that certainty, he says, allow the word of God to, to abide in you or to remain in you. And, and you have the spirit who abides in you as well. So we're to abide in him, to remain. To abide means to remain or to take up permanent address. And this idea of abiding or remaining continues in today's verses. I think it's mentioned, in, at least in my translation, it's mentioned three times in the verses that we've just read. So clearly it's something that John really wants to keep reinforcing to us. This idea of abiding, this idea of remaining in Jesus. And when we talk about abiding, sorry, and, and, and John's starting point is this. He says, look, we can have confidence when Jesus returns. And the key to this, or what you need to do in order to have this confidence is, is if you remain in him. You can have confidence when Jesus returns if you remain in him. That's what you need to do to be prepared. That's what you need to do in order to be ready when Jesus returns. That's what it will take in order for you to have confidence and not to shrink away in shame from him. Abide in him. Remain in him. And when we're talking about remaining in Jesus, we're talking about, it's it's about maintaining personal relationship with him. You can have a personal relationship with Jesus, but to abide in him means to keep going in that. Don't stray away from that. Keep building that relationship. Keep maintaining that relationship. And last week, that warning was, look, maintain that relationship with Jesus. Don't stray into wrong doctrine and wrong ideas and wrong thinking. But it's also about not straying in our conduct. In the way that we live and in the way that we behave. And really that's what we're going to be focusing a lot more on today. John continues, he says, Jesus is righteous. What that means uh, is that he was morally upright. Jesus said of himself, he says, I only do what I see my father doing. Which means that he lived a life that was totally pleasing to God. He He did what is right in the eyes of God. So Jesus is righteous, but for those who are in Christ, righteousness is to be a mark of the new life we have as well. So it's true of Jesus, but it's something that should mark out those who are abiding in him as well. And this is what John's going to build upon over the next few verses that we're going to be exploring together. Now, having spoken on confidence at Christ's coming, having saying, look, this is rooted in remaining in Jesus. That's John's starting point. If you want to have confidence at Christ's arrival, you need to be rooted in him. You need to remain in him. And then he also says how those in Jesus are to be growing in and practicing in righteousness. And from that point, John heads immediately to the question of relationship and identity. He heads straight there. He says, for those who are in Christ... You are children of God. This is hugely important that we understand this. This is where John's going to. You need to know this. You are children of God. That is who you are. I don't know if if you, maybe as you were reading that, heard that being read or if you've read that before. For me, you just kind of get a sense of John's amazement as he's writing this. As he's writing about this truth. He's saying, look, you are children of God. And I think he's so amazed because he understands this was not always so. This was not always the case for us. 
In fact, the Bible goes as far to say, not only were we not children of God at one point, we were actually enemies of him. Because we've all sinned, we've all fallen short of God's glory, which means that we've been separated from him. That's about as far away from being a child as you can get. But now, John says, we're no longer enemies, but we are God's children. Ephesians chapter 1, from verse 3, says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. We've been chosen. It's because of the love that God has for us. I was reading a story a little while ago um, about a coach, an American football coach, coaches in the NFL, and, and someone was covering the story of how he was a guy who had been adopted from a, from a very early age, I think from just a matter of weeks old, uh, and it was talking through his journey, uh, kind of, of, of processing that and uh, and th- there was a point in the street where they were saying that as he was growing up, other kids would tease him and would say that your mum love- doesn't love you as much as she loves her other son. And he goes to his mum, um, to his adoptive um, mother, to his mum, and she says, look, I love you both. She says, I love your son because, uh, I love your brother because he was in my belly. She said, but I love you because I chose you. And as I've read that, I was, that such a powerful thing to read and it just brought home for me that I, and I know the scriptures say that we are adopted as God's sons and daughters but then when I heard that about that mum saying I love you because I chose you it just really brought that home to me <coughs> those verses in Ephesians it says you were chosen before the foundation of the world God had already decided I want you to be a part of my family I want you to be my son or my daughter. And it was in love that he predestined us. It's nothing to do with who we are. It's nothing about what we've done. It's not that there's something really appealing and attractive and lovely about us. Actually, the love is not on our part at all. It's entirely on the part of God. David Jackman, who wrote a commentary on 1 John, he says, speaking about this love, he says, it's a love in which he takes all the initiative to make us his children. He's the one who takes all the initiative. Which is why John can say, see what kind of love has the Father given to us. If something is given to you, it's a gift. God has given us this gift. I don't know if, if you've ever seen, either on telly or in magazines, of if you've got sportsmen or, or sportswomen and seen pictures of their children wearing the sports jersey with the parents parents name and number on the back I was like I always find that really weird only because it's just like but you get to wear that but that's actually your name and like and that's actually who you are you are that person's son or that person's daughter it's like other people can put a jersey on with a name but it doesn't really make a difference but for these children you're like actually there's something really different about this the reason I say this is because God gives us his name this is what John tells us he says we are called children of God But he also gives us his status. 
He says, we are God's children now. We are called God's children and that is who we are. We have his name. We have his status. Do you know what? It can be hard to accept the love of God. Maybe you're someone who feels like they're constantly trying to persuade God to love, you, to love them. Rather than accepting that he already does. Maybe you've never made a decision to follow Jesus. But I want to say this. The Christian life does not begin by persuading God to love you. You don't have to twist his arm. You don't have to convince him. He already loves you. The life that we have in Jesus starts by receiving the gift that he has for you. John says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. But beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Again, John picks up on Christ's return. He says, look, Jesus is going to be coming back. Uh, And then as he continues, there seems a bit, I don't know, there almost seems a bit of mystery here. He says, what we will, um, we are not yet what we will be, but when Christ appears, we'll see him and then we will be as he is. And there's a bit of mystery. It doesn't really unpack it any further than that. And, you know, I'm sure we could have conversations and, and have ideas and thoughts about what they would look like. But what we do know is that as God's children, we're not quite the finished article yet. We are his children. We are safe and we are secure. But we're not quite... There's still something more for us. There's something else. And while John doesn't really expand very much, and while there is this kind of sense of mystery and unknown, what we do know is that when Jesus is revealed, we will be like him. We were singing that truth today, together. We will be like him because we will see him as he truly is. Tom Wright, in his commentary on 1 John, he says that everything that John says throughout the letter hinges on this promise. That when Jesus is revealed, we will be like him. Everything hinges on this promise. He says, take it away and you lose the whole point. This is where our assurance and our confidence and our confidence comes from. Because we will be like him. When we see him, we will be like him. We will know sinless perfection. But what about now? How do we wait? Does it matter? Does it matter how we live now? If we know that at some point Jesus is going to return and we're going to be like him and everything will be, uh, I don't mean to sound flippant, but we can think, oh, everything will be okay then and everything will be great then and it will be. But it's got to affect the here and the now as well. And verse 3 tells us that it does matter because it says that everyone who hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Now, for for me and and my family, I'm very aware, particularly since uh, getting married to Steph and having children, I'm aware that when you're in family, you kind of become quite a lot like each other. So obviously with our children, some of that will be genetic, things that we've passed down in the way that they look and the way that they act and things like that. But actually, you pick up different things as well. I've picked up 
funny little words that Steph's family use that have come into our family now. And I find myself using them a lot. I never would have said stuff like that before. And sometimes I'll do things uh, and I'm just like, well, that's exactly what Steph would have done. And I can see in my kids, they're doing stuff. I'm like, well, they just become, they just exactly like each other. And here's the thing. And it's true of other family dynamics and relationships as well. When you're around people, you become like one another. Jackman, who I mentioned just a moment ago, he, a moment ago, he says, likeness is proof of relationship. Those that you're in relationship with, those that you're in family with, there's a likeness is proof of that relationship. So our adoption as sons and daughters will always result in us starting to resemble the family we belong to. Which is why we need to understand that we are now adopted into God's family as sons and daughters. That is true. That is, we've been given God's name. We've been given God's status. That will not change. But because we are now part of his family, we, become, we start to look more and more like the family that we belong to. This isn't about trying harder. This isn't about simply copying what we've seen or what we've heard. Actually, it's about the Holy Spirit working within us, growing us more into the likeness of God's family. In 2 Corinthians 3.18, it says that we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit who conforms us into the likeness of Jesus, bearing that family resemblance. It's the Holy Spirit who produces Christian character, Within us, it's the Holy Spirit at work in us to conform us into the likeness of God's Son. And as I've just mentioned, this is why John reminds us who we are. He says, We are God's children, and as God's children, we're to be growing in family likeness. And so John continues. He says, Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that He appeared in order to take away sins, and in Him there is no sin. No one who abides in Him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. These are strong words. As you're reading them through, you might be slightly uncomfortable, perhaps, as you're reading them. And we need to be careful that, that, they're, that they're properly understood. The reason I say this a guy called Phil Moore, when he was writing about these verses, he says, do you know what, if you, if, if, if you don't understand these verses properly, you've got the potential to fall either into pride or to fall into despair. So he picks up on pride. He says, look, you might get to this point in reading these where you think that your relationship with God has made you sinlessly perfect already in the way that you live. That because you're in God's family and because you're in him, that it means that you're already sinlessly perfect. So there's that potential that these verses could take us there. Or it could take us to despair because now you're aware of sin in your heart. It actually makes you doubt your relationship with God. Because he's saying that those who practice sinning, those who carry on sinning aren't, aren't of God is what he's saying. And you can think, well, but if I'm aware of sin in my life, does that mean that my relationship with God was actually there in the first place? And both of these misunderstandings, both of these um, potential dangers come from a misunderstanding that John is saying that real Christians never sin. If we think that's what John is saying, then it it can lead to some very unhelpful and unhealthy places. But this can't be what he's saying. It can't be what he's saying. As we read in verse 2, he says, what we will be has not yet appeared, but when Jesus appears, we will be like him. So we know that actually, at this point in time, we've not got that sinless perfection in the sense that, that Jesus has. 
And actually, in the first week, uh, in chapter 1, um, it was saying, he writes to the church, and he says, I'm writing these things that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, then we go to Jesus. Okay? So he's, we need to understand that he's saying it. It's like, actually, we, there will still be times where we fail. But in those times, actually, there's, there's an answer to that, and we go to Jesus with that. So when you sin, take it straight to God because he is faithful and just to forgive. There's great comfort. I think this letter is just full of such comfort in the way that John writes. So it can't be that John is saying that Christians never sin. As we say, if we've come to that conclusion, then we're in very shaky ground. uh, And we will not end up in a good place. But he uses words like everyone who makes a practice of sinning. And he talks about those who are keeping on sinning. Now, I don't know about you, but if I think about the word practice, I wonder what kind of things come into your mind if you think about the word practice. For me, it speaks of something that's kind of ongoing. Something that's regular. Something that's really kind of a fixture and a habit of your life. And I think this is the distinction that we need to make. That this is what John is saying. He's, like, he's saying, those, if, if you're in Christ, then you can't be those that practice sinning. You can't be those that keep on sinning. What he's telling us to be aware of, what he's calling us to be aware of is sinning as the regular mode or way in which we live. Failures are going to come, but those failures are to come within a way of living or a settled habit where sin no longer, di- no longer dictates or determines how we live. It's a very different thing from thinking that we've been told that Christians can't sin in that sense. Uh, or that Christians never sin. Actually, I just want to reinforce that. Actually, whatever failures we have, they're to come within a way of living, a settled habit where sin no longer dictates or determines the way that we live. Tom Wright uses this really wonderful picture. He says that we are playing a different piece of music now. And even if our fingers slip sometimes and play some wrong notes, notes that belong uh, to the music that we used to play, that doesn't mean we're going to go back to play that old music for real once more. Mistakes will happen. Failures will come. But we're, we're, we're in a different life now to the one that we were in. I think what John is saying is our view of sin... When we're in Christ, our view of sin has to be different. Something has to have changed. We can no longer be comfortable with it. And when we're aware of it, when the Holy Spirit makes us aware of it, we deal with it and we take it straight to Jesus. And we don't allow it to just become that. That's just the habit of the way that we live. Galatians 5, verse 16, 17 says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh, for they are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. We're in a battle. We are. We're in a battle. And it's a lifelong battle. We're on a lifelong journey, and we're on a lifelong process of learning. We will fail. I'm not certain that to make you feel condemned. I'm actually saying, you know what, it's the reality of how it is. But we will fail. But here's the good news. With the Spirit's help, actually our life and our lifestyle is to be one that's ever increasingly characterised by righteousness growing more and more in the family likeness. 
And John warns again, in verse 7, he says, little, little children, he says, let no one deceive you. Let no one deceive you. Because actually, if we're looking to grow in the family likeness, if we're looking to look and grow to become more like Jesus, it won't happen if we listen to the false teachings. It won't happen if we listen to those that, have, uh, uh, that, that, that are claiming... Um, so, so kind of don't be deceived by false teaching that leads away from a call to righteousness or anything that, that says questions of morality you can kind of be a bit indifferent about. There is, there is teaching out there that would say, and, and teaching that was coming into the church at that point, that would say, actually, the way you live doesn't matter. It's all about what you know and having this knowledge revealed to you. They would say it doesn't matter. But John said, no, it does matter. This matters. The way that you live, who you're abiding in, how you're waiting matters. You see, these teachers, they might have claimed that they've got extra knowledge, but clearly it was not resulting in or producing righteousness in their life. I think it was Jesus that says, by their fruit, you will know them. There's evidence. What your life produces shows what's inside of you. And so we grow in the family likeness by abiding in Jesus. Again, it's, said it, it's mentioned three times in these, in these verses that we've been looking at. In verse 28, in verse 6 and verse 9. This whole idea that John keeps coming back to. You need to abide. You need to remain. You need to stay in this place. And Jesus himself, he spoke about abiding. In John 15, verse 5, he says of himself, he says, I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Abiding is the key. Because it's the abiding that produces fruit. It's the abiding that produces godly character. It's the abiding where, um, if, we look, if we were to look anywhere else apart from Jesus, then we're going to be in trouble. Because he's the one who produces that godly character. So the spirit produces that godly character and we become more and more like Jesus. So we don't look to anyone else but Jesus. Back to week one. I just want to take us quickly back to week one. And in chapter one, John talks about Jesus like this. He says, that which was from the beginning. He says that Jesus was the life made manifest. And in him is eternal life. And John goes on to say, he says that God is light in him. There is no darkness. And in these verses that we've been looking at today, he says that Jesus is righteous and he's pure. So when we're called to abide in Jesus, this is who we're abiding in. But in these verses we're looking at today, John also speaks about something or someone who was in the beginning. He says, look, Jesus, the word was in the beginning, but actually the devil was also in the beginning. And whereas he characterises Jesus as life and light and righteousness and purity, he says, actually, the devil has been sinning from the beginning. He's the opposite of everything that Jesus is. He is sin, he is darkness, and he is death. And from the moment sin entered the world through Adam and Eve, it's been a problem that's needed a solution. That's been true throughout the whole of history. Sin has been a problem that affects everyone who's ever lived. And it's a problem that needs a solution. And the wonderful thing is, is that God did not turn his back on his creation. Which is why John can write in these verses, 
He says that the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Fillmore puts it like this. He says that Jesus did the opposite of fleeing from the world. He stepped into it to confront its plague head on. Adam chose to side with the devil against God in the garden. Jesus chose to side with God against the devil in the desert. Adam looked at the tree of knowledge and said to God, not what you want, but what I want. Jesus looked at the tree of Calvary and said to God, not what I want, but what you want. Having stepped into Adam's shoes and succeeded wherever Adam failed, Jesus then took the plague of sin upon himself when he died on the cross. The devil and his demons crowed in triumph, thinking that they had won. But on the third day, Jesus rose from the dead and proclaimed that he had just destroyed the plague of sin forever. That is why Jesus came into the world. You see, we can try and come up with a solution to sin. But everything that we can ever come up with, every clever idea, every solution that we think they have, they'll only ever be man-made. Products of us. We might be able to deal with the symptoms, but would never get to the cause of it ourselves. We can be tempted to flee from the world. We can be tempted to try and and separate ourselves from the world. We think if we can just keep ourselves kind of away from that, then we'll be okay in terms of becoming more like Jesus and having our lives characterised more by righteousness than by sin. Maybe we just need to, to, to either separate ourselves or put some walls up that just keeps us a bit separated. Sounds like, it sounds like it could work and it could be a good idea. But it will never work because sin is not just something that's out there, it's something that's in here. It's in us. It's about our hearts. It's about what we worship and about what we long for. So actually, the only solution to the problem of sin, the only solution that will ever work for us is the gospel, is the life and work of Jesus. Because it's only the gospel that works from the inside out. It's only the gospel that gets to the heart, to our heart. Don't look for a solution other than Jesus. When we're talking about growing in the family likeness, becoming more like Jesus, we can try and come up with solutions for ourselves. And we can think, well, if I just do this, if I just try harder, if I just bring this in, or change this about the way that I live, then maybe I'll become more and more like Jesus. I want to say this, don't look for a solution, for any solution other than him. I'm going to read those verses that Jesus said again. John 15, 5. I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. I mentioned in the first week that this letter of John's, it's not a list of do's and don'ts. Rather, it's a manifesto of done. It hinges on the fact that Jesus has done everything that we could never do. Everything that needed to be done, but we could never do for ourselves. Jesus accomplished that, which is why when he was on the cross, he was able to say, it is finished. It's done. See, it's all possible only because of what Jesus has done for us. By this it is evident 
Who are the children of God? And who are the children of the devil? Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. Nor is the one who does not love his brother. That last bit there seems like, hang on a second, he's gone off on a little bit of a tangent, coming in here and talking about uh, loving your brother. And actually what he's doing is setting himself up for what comes next. Okay, so we'll be looking at that next week. But really, he's just reinforcing his point again. Likeness is the proof of relationship. People can claim to have special knowledge like the false teachers were. Anyone can claim to follow Jesus. But the question is, to which family do they show themselves to belong? See, church, I want to encourage you. Lord, allow John to encourage him. We can have confidence at his appearance. As we see ourselves growing in the family likeness. We can have confidence because this shows that we belong to God's family. We can have confidence because this shows us that we are truly his children. And when you read in verses about sin. And when scripture speaks about uh, about the devil, you know what? sometimes we can. It can be a bit. It can be a bit uncomfortable, and it can be hard, and we're not quite sure how to, to deal with that. And and even as we've been talking about, um, you know, being those whose lives are characterised by righteousness, that those who are in Christ uh, should go on sinning no more, and that they shouldn't be practising sin. And actually, we might be sitting here thinking. But you know what, I know there's stuff in my life that at the moment is not good. There's stuff that's not right. Actually, I know that that there's things that God's highlighting right now that I just, I I don't know how that fits in with what we've just been reading in those words of John. But I want to say this. Remember, John is writing these things because he wants to bring assurance and comfort and confidence And my heart for each one of us is that we leave today actually feeling assured and feeling comforted and not feeling beaten up and downhearted. Because if God is highlighting things in your life, there's a reason why. It's because he wants to do you good. It's because he wants you to to, uh, have confidence. It's because he wants to point you once again to Jesus. I read those verses in 2 Corinthians 3 a little earlier. But actually the verse that comes before it says that now the Lord is the Spirit and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. So actually this life that John writes about, this life of growing in the family likeness, this life of our lifestyles being characterised by righteousness and growing uh, more and more into the likeness of Jesus actually this is about freedom but it's freedom that can only come through Jesus and it's freedom that continues as we abide in him may I pray for us